I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi there and welcome again to the Explaining History podcast. Now you may have noticed if you're a regular listener in the last few weeks that the number of episodes has sort of gone down a bit and that's basically because I've been moving house and most of my recording gear has been at the bottom of a a box somewhere. So uh, 
here we are in the, the new abode and uh, the stack of uh, history books next to me. We've got some great interviews coming up uh, in the, the, the coming week. Um, you should have two for you. Um, I don't want to kind of spoil the surprises, but you, I think you're going to be pretty pleased. Um, today I'm talking mainly about uh, so some of the sort of the, the kind of the misconceptions that we have uh, around the effects of Thatcherism um, and the the kind of the the contradictions that exist within this phase of conservatism that begins in the mid 1970s that in many ways can't be thought of as being particularly conservative at all. These aren't new ideas particularly, but um, much of what parades as conservatism around the world now in Britain and America, America's a slightly different story, but not not that dissimilar, um, is a kind of a, a, a very strange hybrid of kind of extreme social conservatism um, if you look at both Britain and America, the Conservative Party in Britain and the Republican Party in America fight these uh, endless cultural uh, culture wars um, on questions of uh, race and gender and sexuality and um, some kind of um, last-ditch attempt to fend off modernity. But they also employ the, the kinds of economic policies that for four or five decades have led to the very social fragmentation that they profess to decry. So we're going to try to kind of delve into this and, and explore this a little bit with the help of John Gray, the philosopher, who by by no means a kind of um, an anti-Thatcherite really um, and during the, the 1980s um, was, was quite favoured by, by Margaret Thatcher from time to time. But is a, a figure um, who sort of has kind of drifted between left and uh, left and right. This is perhaps not how he described himself, but it's certainly uh, I don't think his critique can be seen as particularly a left critique. Anyway, so here in his book False Dawn: The Delusions of Global Capitalism, he writes about um, the development of kind of this period of um, globalisation which she describes as uh, the uh, development of a global free market I would doubt whether you could really ever say that from the 70s between the 70s and shall we say um, 2008 a global free market emerged but that's a slightly different conversation he writes Thatcherite economic policies strengthened and accelerated most of the social and economic forces that have subsequently resulted in the dissolution of traditional families and communities. They set British society on a forced march into late modernity. The role of Thatcherism as a modernising project is rarely understood. The backward-looking character of market liberal ideology can be deceptive. Re-engineering the free market in late modern Britain dissolved the last remnants of the social order that has sustained it, uh, it in the 19th century. Not only the traditional family, but the class culture of deference and respectability, which have been indispensable to the free market, have largely been swept away. So the, the 1980s particularly is this... Um, period um, rather like the 1960s of kind of uh, social transformation it, popularly we think of the 1960s as a period of social revolution 
I have often believed that the 1980s saw a far greater social revolution in terms of class mobility, in terms of things like gay rights, in terms of um, advancing rights for um, uh, black and Asian people. It's a huge, it's a time of, of retrenchment of, of, of those things as well, with things like Section 28, um, uh, stop and search laws. Um, and partly the the kind of the resistance against um, these repressive policies um, accounts for the the gains and the um, achievements um, uh, of minority groups in the 1980s. But the, you could also argue that the 1980s is uh, a period in which things like right women's rights and again gay rights. Um, take a step forward perhaps because of the struggles of previous generations too very often um, the people that um, proposed and fought for change in the 1960s had to wait for a, sub a later generation in order for these things to, to kind of materialise anyway what Thatcherism did or some critics argue um, that Thatcherism really followed these social changes but this critique suggests that Thatcherism brought these social changes about what it, it did was to um, by the, through the unleashing of market forces dissolve um, previous social systems and social structures which had held things like deference in place for example, when credit becomes more widely available and working class people can afford holidays and cars and consumerism and all these sorts of things, one an instinctive question they ask themselves as their living standards appear to transform, even if this is kind of fueled by, by debt and borrowing, is if we have nice things, if we have living standards which are equivalent to our social betters, why are we bowing and scraping to them? And the um, opportunities for kind of entrepreneurialism, for further study, for social um, geographical kind of mobility, for people to go and live in different towns and cities, people where I am in the the kind of um, the, 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 the poverty struck uh, South Wales valleys of, of the 1980s, uh, could simply go go and live in London and live far more exciting, multicultural, cosmopolitan, uh, and interesting lifestyles from the the sort of the the more insular communities that they they come from. All of this changes experience, it changes expectation, it changes the way we see the world, and it uh, and it brings about generational social change when lots of people do this sort of thing. So. Um, the the, the the old world of conservatism, as exemplified by the Tory grandees and people like, you know, popularly Harold Macmillan or the, the Tory wets in Thatcher's cabinet, people like Willie Whitelaw or Jim Pryor, the, their version of conservatism was that, you know, the, the working man should be treated reasonably well, um, but that um, there should be not a great deal of, of uh, kind of social progression. This was the world of the, the kind of the, the grandees um, on, on the uh, people with a kind of titles and, and, and wealth. Macmillan certainly was one of those. And also those who, uh, a great many of them who had served as officers during the Second World War, and in Macmillan's case, the First World War. Thatcher was not from that world. Thatcher, not working class, but lower middle class, like 
and Heath was probably actually more you could define him as being working class. These were a uh, and John Major after Thatcher certainly has working class origins. These were the the kinds of figures that came from a, a kind of a, a very active pool of conservative voters. The sort of the, the, the petty bourgeoisie who had come up from working class origins didn't want to go back to them and resented um, uh, working class collectivism. They resented trade unions as anti-competitive and uh, anti-individualistic and uh, a means by which their hard-earned taxes could be redirected towards the, the undeserving. These are sort of like, you know, rather un unpleasant sort of petty bourgeois prejudices. But Margaret Thatcher, you know, Margaret Thatcher viewed... The, the 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 gentleman aristocrats of the Conservative Party with a great deal of suspicion, and she viewed them as being complacent, and she viewed them as being um, part you know part of a, a certain kind of elitist backwardness, which she saw every bit as toxic and as as dangerous to her vision of the country as Britain's trade unions. She took it in her mind that she was going to break two elites, really, the the the, the trade unions. And the hold of the and, and the kind of hold of gentlemen capitalists over the Conservative Party and over the, the City of London. Obviously, in the first group, she she fared far better. When I've been recently talking about David Edgerton's brilliant book, um, the uh, rise and fall of uh, the British nation. Um, his argument was that Margaret Thatcher failed in every single undertaking that she. Um, uh, embarked on bar one her, her great failure uh, her, her only success if you will was the defeat of socialism in Great Britain the thing that she wanted to bring about which was perhaps her greatest failure was the uh, re-establishment of manufacturing in, in Britain and this this kind of ambition speaks volumes about I guess a kind of an economic illiteracy or uh, a naivety on, on her part in that every policy she employed um, was almost guaranteed to destroy it. There was an assumption on, on Thatcher's part as a result of reading things like Hayek and uh, Milton Friedman that simply the by exposing um the, uh, the the British industry to market forces, one would suddenly bring about this kind of revolution in competitiveness, and Britain had been probably since the eighteen seventies struggling from low investment. If you uh, look at the headlines today, it, it, you know about a week ago, it was revealed that since the turn of the of the 21st century britain has missed out on something like about half a trillion pounds of public and private investment which is why uh, you know as one might see as a casual observer in britain nothing works at all at the moment so low investment is be is a a kind of a a a, a long running problem for the country and this kind of accounts for a great deal of Britain's declining competitiveness and gradual decline in Britain's manufacturing industries. The idea that simply putting the feet, feet uh, of Britain's manufacturers to the fire uh, and um, exposing them to the kind of the, 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 the policies that brought about kind of 
radical com- uh, competition in the 1980s was somehow going to uh, improve things um, was something of a kind of a, 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 a blinkered ideological uh, uh, assumption. John Gray writes, Unperceived and never comprehended by Thatcherism's vociferous ideologues and their blinkered disciples, one effect of Thatcher's policies was to subject Britain's deformed class culture to a modernisation more far-reaching than any Labour had ever attempted. In imposing a forced modernisation on many aspects of life in Britain, Thatcherism made the projects of its chief political rivals obsolete. It marginalised one-nation Toryism in the Conservative Party and the Social Democrats who broke away from Labour, uh, the Labour Party in the early 1980s. Neither had a clear sight of the scale of the changes that were afoot in Britain. In different ways, each depended on a class culture that Thatcherism was eroding. The rout of these contending political projects was one of the New Right's signal successes in Britain. But in displacing these tendencies from the political centre ground in Britain, Thatcherism created some of the conditions for its own demise. One of Thatcherism's main ironies was its relationship with the nation-state. Neoliberal economic policies stripped the nation-state of most of its leverage over national economic life, while Thatcherite public rhetoric clothed this denuded institution with an archaic veil of authority. Thatcher was, uh, you know, first and foremost, beyond long before she inherited any kind of economic ideology, Thatcher, Margaret Thatcher was a nationalist. She um, believed in Britain in a way she felt others had ceased to do so, ceased to. Margaret Thatcher thought that um, it it was possible by undoing the kind of the 1945 settlement, the, um, the, 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 the development of the welfare state, to create a rejuvenised, resurgent Britain, a Britain that she remembered, a Britain of sort of small shopkeepers, the, the likes of her, her father, Alderman Roberts in, in Grantham, uh, a Britain based on personal responsibility. Her view of the welfare state was that the welfare state was fundamentally immoral. Um, then it was Im- immoral because it eroded the instinct in people to um, take responsibility for themselves, but also to take responsibility for um, helping their neighbours. Margaret Thatcher basically said that if the if that. Uh, if the poor are to be helped, and she didn't, she didn't, she never necessarily advocated the complete stripping away of all social safety. Um, partly because she thought it was, was politically unachievable more than anything else, but she thought that what what in her mind socialism had in Britain had done, um, you know, it's debatable whether, whether actual socialism has ever been tried in Britain. But what she believed it had done is it had disempowered people from philanthropy, and that. Um, giving to others should be voluntary, and that it is just encouraged to be um, to to give to others and to to help thy neighbour. And this is the act of a of a good a, a good Christian. But the the immorality of the welfare state meant that it robbed people of their personal agency to to give to others, which is um, 
I mean, there are uh, numerous holes in that argument and it's kind of shooting fish in a barrel to go after them. And sometimes it's important, even it's more important than kind of um, looking for the, 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 the obvious low-hanging fruit in arguments. So just look at the argument for what it is and get a sense of, of the kind of the mindset that we're talking about here. I, I think with... Um, uh, when it talks in, in what John Gray is writing about about this this kind of social transformation, the the kind of the old version of conservatism relied on a kind of a a, a middle class that was largely allied to the Tory project, a, um, uh, and uh, parts of the the middle class had uh, with uh, had drifted progressively to the left during the 1960s and 70s um, and it relied on a kind of a, a deferential working class the the, 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 the new working class uh, voters that embraced Thatcherism in, in the 1980s embraced it uh, in a kind of a, a transactional way um, they, they embraced it because Margaret Thatcher um, uh, allowed for council house sales uh, they embraced it because there was a widespread resentment towards the trade union movement as a result of the, the crises of the 1970s and uh, this sort of popular working class um, uh, tabloids uh, attacking the union movement the union movement is far from being with it without blame itself and the problem that um, the, the the Labour Party had is that firstly they see kind of a, a, a traditional working class voter base eroding, but also working class Labour Party uh, Labour uh, la you know local constituency Labour parties became transformed during the nineteen seventies as um, working class members stayed away and middle class um, uh, middle class. Uh, educated um, public servants, teachers, college lecturers, lawyers, and people who um, were had very different ideological positions uh, on what the Labour Party should be doing uh, rose to prominence within uh, constituency parties. When you have this, this sort of popular resentment uh, towards the left of the Labour Party, uh, most recently exemplified by Jeremy Corbyn, um, the uh, and the sort of like a, a kind of an ill-fitting parody of, of those those sorts of people um, who um, did take a keen interest in struggles in South Africa and Nicaragua and Chile and places like that. Um, there, there was there was this kind of popular view of working class labour members that you know these people have their head in the clouds. They they they're more interested in what's happening on the other side of the world than they are about kind of you know housing in, in their own community, which again is, is completely unfair and, un, and untrue. What Thatcherism and sort of Thatcherism's kind of successor regimes and uh, Major Blair and. Um, Cameron and Osborne and all the other host of Tories that have come come since. What these uh, governments have had to defend is a, a gradually uh, increasingly globalised economy. Um, and on one level, that globalised economy has provided, uh, you know, more diverse goods and services, which is, you know, OK. 
Um, there have been, um, in, you know, some improvements in um, uh, living standards as a result of this wave of cheap goods uh, that are largely manufactured in China. It gave Britain in the first decade of the 2000s this huge kind of um, unrecognised pay rise for what is becoming an increasingly low wage economy. However, what has been globalised as well is control over the the, the, the kind of the, the functioning parts of the British economy. Uh, if you look at the crisis of Britain's water system, which was privatised and is now owned by um, uh, private equity firms in Wall Street and um, institutional investors in the Middle East, uh, and national governments in, uh, across Europe and um, investors and banks in Australia, Britain's water industry uh, is a means by which wealth can be extracted from Great Britain. And this is precisely how um, investors see things. Um, the, the state has this kind of strange role in protecting this um, uh, sell-off of um, Brit uh, British national assets, railways, and um, other, uh, and also key industries, uh, national champion industries such as Britain's car industry, um, and and defending that politically and sometimes even you know physically using the forces of law and order. To uh, um, to prevent um, you know a, a threat to that that economic model, of course, for a party that presents itself as a kind of the the the, the kind of the the backbone of the social order, something that maintains um, the status quo and something that maintains kind of national pride and national interests, there's a kind of a direct and radical contradiction there. Um, one that previous iterations of the Tory party would would never have allowed. Um, the um, basis of um, Tory party uh, donorship don has switched from being the, the small businessman um, from in, in the mid-1960s and 70s, and even in the 1980s, the petty bourgeois, the... Um, the, the, the kind of the, the, the small town car dealer or the um, solicitor or the doctor would have been the, the kind of person attended conferences and got their hands in their pockets for a, a couple of grand. Um, now, as we know, donations are globalised and, and, and far, far greater, far, far more dubious. Um, so the, the Conservative Party in this kind of transformation from Thatcher onwards um, has tried to kind of hold together this, this contradictory position of being you know, the, the, the party of family and nation while kind of presiding over almost a sort of disintegration of, of, of the nation. And this is the, the kind of the undoing of conservatism that John Gray writes about. A rhetoric of inexorable economic globalisation was combined with the assertion of the unique authority and, and indispensable utility of a common national culture. Britain's relationship with the European Union, this was written long before Brexit, was condemned as a fetter on its national sovereignty by Tory neoliberals who held that no national government could hope to buck world markets. 
One of the great ironies of Brexit as well is that if one wanted to take back control, which you know in in a in a increasingly globalized world is is something of an absurdity in its or in its right, um, you know Brussels is the least of your worries really. Um, in in a world where kind of financial decisions, as we saw with Liz Trust the other year, and you know mixed blessings there really, um, the uh, in a world where there are where the decisions of governments are reviewed by markets, particularly bond markets, you know, markets that were full of people that buy government debt every day, and if they are found wanting the the currency tanks, the the idea of of, of taking back control and becoming some kind of um, sort of autarkic national economy that can do its own thing is a bit of a nonsense. Um, but perhaps uh, those that came up with the idea of Brexit didn't really reflect on that. Who knows? The um, the sovereign nation state was glorified, writes John Gray. Uh, just uh, at just the historical moment when those who elevated it declared it to be economically redundant. In the mass media, Thatcherite policies positive positively promoted the fragmentation of the common national culture by globalization genuinely national institutions such as the bbc were attacked relentlessly while commercial internationalization of the media had actively was actively uh, begun the nation state was denied any central role even in the renewal of national culture so thatcherism Cherry picked, really. I mean, and perhaps you know, all ideolo- uh, all kind of ideological positions are are similar to this. Thatcherism cherry picked the aspects of national culture which it chose to maintain and, and uphold, and yet embraced the kind of economic forces which were most likely to dissolve it, um, and. In, in there is the, the kinds of contradictions which I think it's taken really 40 years to to find to, to fully realize um, I think brexit was perhaps a, a kind of an incoherent and confused sort of convulsion against that sort of erosion of people and people had witnessed it for a long long time. And we shall see next year, uh, when the general election happens, how much the future of the Conservative Party, if there is one, is determined by um, what remain, you know, remaining. And I think there's an awful lot of it still um, remaining British national sentiment. It may just be that British people decide, to put it mildly, that they want their country back. And this time it won't be from uh, the shadowy bureaucrats in Brussels. Anyway, I'll leave you there. So we've got two amazing interviews coming uh, later this week. Um, They're going to be really, really cool. Um, I'll put some uh, notes on the website about those um, uh, a little bit later on. Uh, But I'll be hopefully putting out a few more podcasts now that we are back up and running and uh, everything's working fine. Thanks very much. Take care, everybody. All the best. Bye-bye.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.